for the most part, rich Americans haven't lost their jobs, so they still have money coming into their bank accounts. They're just able to work from home and are not going out and spending their money. Hi, I'm Clémentine Vanifontaire. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequalitox. Michael Stepner will soon join me as a professor at the University of Toronto, starting in July 2021. He is currently a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard University and received his PhD in economics from MIT. In his research, he studies the relationship between health and economic inequality, with a focus on how public policy can improve the health and financial security of low-income populations. We talked about the very recent study on financial security during the COVID-19 pandemic that he conducted at the Opportunity Insights Lab in Harvard's Economic Department. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Clementine? I'm good. Thank you very much for joining me today uh, to talk about your really impressive research. So we know that COVID-19 has caused a really severe reduction of GDP in the U.S. and an unprecedented job loss. And with part of your team with Rachetti, John Friedman, Nathan Hendren, and the Opportunity Insights team, you guys actually tried to go one step further. And uh, you decided to like document what's behind the impact of COVID-19 on consumer spending and to try to see where the job losses are coming from. That would be obviously really crucial to come up with appropriate policy responses. So I wanted to ask you, what are the main mechanisms through which the drop in consumption materializes, and if you could walk us through these mechanisms so we can better understand the policy response to it. COVID-19 has caused faster changes in employment and spending than really ever before in modern history. Uh, in order to diagnose what's going on in the economy, we need to be able to disaggregate those changes and see how they're flowing from one person to another or one sector to another. And that's really difficult to do using the data that is traditionally used to make macroeconomic policy. So every month or every quarter, the government, both in the United States and in Canada, conducts these large surveys of businesses and of consumers to find out how many people are unemployed, how much people are spending. But those surveys are released, one, at a, at a particularly long lag. So you might have to wait six weeks or even many months before some of these results come out. And they tend to be released at a national level. So it's hard to figure out when things are changing very uh, rapidly and very differently in local areas, it's very hard to diagnose what's changing using the standard tools of our trade. So what we do is we use private sector data. So we collect anonymous data from credit card companies, financial services companies, and payroll companies in order to get a real-time measure of how the economy is changing. And so we're able to measure most of these metrics, like employment and spending and business revenues, with, within about seven days of the relevant economic activity occurring. And we're able to disaggregate that data and see how things are changing on a local level and for different types of people. So for high-income people or low-income people. So your work relies on the a real data infrastructure. Like you mentioned, you both complement publicly available data sources to these uh, private company data sources. And I wanted to ask if you could tell us about the benefits of working with such data, like 
we understand that the, the dynamics and uh, the, the really rapid adjustment is really what's key, but also the potential limits or what, what were the challenges that you faced when you started working with these data? We're able to release this data quickly at a daily level so people can really get a fine-grained picture. And we can also release it by sector, by location. We can get down to the zip code level in some data sets. And then we can also look at it by sector. So those are the benefits. I think there are two main difficulties with working with private sector data. The first is access. So in order to get access to these companies' data, traditionally requires signing a data use agreement, negotiating contracts with their legal services departments, and that's a high barrier to entry. And I think that's actually one of the key contributions of our paper is to democratize the access to that data, because all of the data that we use in this paper is being released publicly. You can go to trackTheRecovery.org, you can visualize the data yourself, and then you can also go download a file that contains these numbers. So that means that researchers, policymakers, students, and just interested members of the public can access this data without going through all of the legal hurdles uh, that would be required to get it directly from the company. The second and perhaps deeper challenge with this data is that the traditional public you know, surveys that are done by the federal government are designed to capture a representative sample of the population, either a representative sample of businesses or of consumers. And when you start working with private sector data, you're working with a sample of whoever is a customer of the company that decided that they can give you their data. And so one of the things we do in this paper is we put a lot of work into benchmarking the data sets that we've chosen to study against the public traditional measures of consumption, of employment, in order to measure exactly, is this a good representation of the population of businesses or of small businesses or of low-income consumers? So characterizing who we're representing and showing that historically the data sets we're using have tracked very closely with the traditionally used data sets. And so when you combine together all these different data sources and you try to you know, describe really how the economy and consumption is evolving between March and April typically, what are your main conclusions? Uh, how did consumption evolve during this period of time? So we start by seeing that at the beginning of March, even before the pandemic was declared by the federal government and by the state governments, consumer spending started falling precipitously. And over the course of March, consumer spending fell by about 30 percentage points. Now, that fall was quite large for both low-income consumers and high-income consumers. And one important thing to note is that high-income consumers have more room to cut back in their budgets. They spend a smaller share of their money on the daily necessities like rent and groceries and prescription drugs. And so a similar drop in consumption actually hits harder for low-income consumers. So that's what we saw at the beginning of the pandemic. Now, since March, there were a variety of policy changes. One of the most notable ones were the stimulus checks. And so stimulus checks, the U.S. government sent out typically $1,200 checks to households in the United States. And those started being deposited, the vast majority of them, hit people's bank accounts on April 15th. And low-income consumers were both more likely to receive these checks, and then also there were provisions to allow them to receive larger checks. What you see is that there is a sharp 
increase in spending among low-income consumers when they receive these stimulus checks. And actually, if you delve into the data, you can see them start to spend money on some of those necessities, like their utilities bills, that they might not have been able to afford as they lost their jobs at the beginning of the pandemic. So you see a sharp recovery in spending among low-income consumers, but a very slow recovery in spending among high-income consumers. And so looking at June 10th, more than half of the reduction in spending in the U.S. is being driven by the top, the richest 25% of Americans. And that's striking because they haven't, for the most part, rich Americans haven't lost their jobs. So they still have money coming into their bank accounts. They're just able to work from home and are not going out and spending their money. And so that's where our paper starts looking at the fact that spending has fallen dramatically and is driven by the richest you know, quarter of Americans. And then we start to follow that through, how that has impacted business revenue, and then how that's ultimately affected people's employment. So there's something really specific of the type of consumption that fell coming from these high-income consumers, and that somehow differs with respect to the previous like Great Recession, for instance. What is so particular about the types of goods and services that are not being consumed anymore? That's right. So traditionally, in an economic recession, you have people... Traditionally, the cause of reduction in spending is that people lose money. They don't have as much income to spend. So they cut back on their spending. And the way that people typically cut back on their spending is by delaying the purchase of durable goods. So if you have a car, you might have been planning on replacing it this year, mm, your old car can last another year, you keep driving it and you replace it a year or two down the road. You might delay replacing your washing machine or your dishwasher. Those kinds of durable goods that you can just extend the life a little longer. In contrast, what's happening right now is that the vast majority of the change in spending is being driven by in-person services. So things like restaurants, and hotels, and arts and entertainment, precisely the types of spending that are put you at risk of contracting coronavirus. And so actually, if you look, not only can you see this in the types of spending that people are cutting back on, more than about two thirds of, that, of the spending reductions are driven by services, whereas in the Great Recession, spending on those types of services didn't change at all. You can also see this in terms of how spending cuts have differed for people in different areas of the United States. So in areas with high rates of coronavirus, there are much larger reductions in spending on in-person services. By contrast, if you look at luxury goods that don't require face-to-face -face contact, so spending on landscaping or the installation of an in-home swimming pool, these are things that traditionally people would cut back on if they didn't have the money to spend, but there's been no change in spending on those types of services. What we've seen is that people are cutting back on precisely those services where they're put face to face with other humans. And so all of our evidence really points to these reductions in spending being driven by health concerns and fears of the virus rather than some sort of uh, demand side change in people's desire to go out and consume uh, the things they typically buy. 
And what's really fascinating in your studies is that you combine both the dimension of heterogeneity by income groups, like we just talked about, but also by uh, geographic locations. And it's also interesting to see that the economic fragility of low-income households, for instance, varies a lot depending on the places where they work. If you think, for instance, about New York, I think that's a very important example that you, you put in the paper, we see that there's a lot of variation happening. Can you walk us through this? That's exactly right. So as people have cut back on their spending, it's been particularly affluent Americans who have cut back on their spending. And the way they've cut back on their spending has been to reduce their consumption of face-to-face -face services. And most of those services are provided by small local businesses. Think about where you get your haircut or where you go out for a drink at the end of the day. These tend to be local places. And most of the people working at those places are low-wage service sector workers. And so what we're able to do is follow that chain of spending and where the money goes. So we start by looking at business revenues. And business revenues have fallen dramatically among small businesses, but much more so for small businesses in affluent areas where rich people live. And then if you then look at employment at small businesses, employment at small businesses has fallen, and particularly so for low-income people. So precisely those people who have traditionally depended on the spending of the rich in order for their businesses to uh, succeed and ultimately pay them, those people are now particularly vulnerable to the whims of spending that are changing in the midst of this crisis. And so it highlights this dimension of economic fragility where not only has inequality increased, so there's a large body of research, perhaps most recently, David Otter is known for this work, showing a hollowing out of the middle class where more and more workers are either upper class, uh, high income consumers, or low income service sector workers. So as the middle class is hollowed out and you have more and more people at the bottom of the income distribution whose wages depend on the spending of people at the top, that creates this vulnerability and this fragility where absent that spending, their job, they're just not able to work. That's really fascinating. And I think another really important part of your research is to see what in practice, how can we remediate that? And what are the type of policy interventions that can provide a safety net or uh, address the economic impact and the distributional impact of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic? And so you investigate the impact of three policies specifically designed to mitigate the impact of COVID-19. And you come up with various conclusions. Can you walk us through the different policy tools that you evaluated in this research? Certainly. So there have been a whole variety of policies that have been implemented in Canada and the U.S. to address the economic crisis that's resulted from COVID-19. We focus on three of the biggest ones in the United States that target at different points of this chain of spending and revenues and employment losses. So we start by looking at the reopening orders. Many state governments had their governors announce businesses are closing, everyone needs to stay home. 
and then subsequently announced businesses are reopening. It's, it's safe to go outside. It's time for spending to resume. And we look at how economic activity changed as these economies reopened. And we compare those states that reopened earlier in the pandemic to similar states that reopened weeks later in the pandemic. And what we see is that, first of all, the recovery in spending has been slow and steady and started well before the governors announced their reopenings. And at the time that these reopenings are announced, there's no dramatic change in spending. So spending continues to recover, both in the states that announced reopenings early and in the states that were yet to announce their reopening and announce their reopening later. So there might be a small change in spending, but certainly no dramatic sharp change in consumers' behavior when the state governments are announcing a business reopening. So that suggests that just changing people's behavior by pure economic policy is going to be difficult going forward. People's behavior is really going to seems to respond to the prevalence of the virus and getting a handle on the public health risks and making it so that it is safe to go out and people truly feel safe is going to be necessary to address this crisis. Now, there were two other policies that targeted this economic crisis at different points in the chain. So a second policy was the Paycheck Protection Program, which was a set of loans to small businesses that have now, the federal government has now spent over $650 billion on these loans to small businesses. And one of the stipulations of these loans is that these businesses need to retain their workers on payroll. So businesses that were eligible for these loans, they were small business loans. And in particular, what that means is that businesses with less than 500 employees were eligible, whereas businesses with more than 500 employees were ineligible. That's true in broad strokes. There are some exceptions that we handle in the paper. That's the broad conception. And so we're able to examine the effects of this policy by looking at how employment changed at businesses that were just above 500 or just below 500 employees. What we see is that there weren't big changes in employment at those businesses. Uh, both large and small businesses experienced large drops in employment, very similar drops in employment before the Paycheck Protection Program. But the, the difference in employment after the Paycheck Protection Program started was minimal, maybe a handful of percentage points. So thinking about how much was spent on these programs, we can see that very few jobs were saved relative to the amount of money that was spent. And so in a sense, like the vast majority of this money went to workers and businesses who were not at risk of being laid off or who were not at risk of being shut down. It suggests room for greater targeting in future policy to try to direct funds to the businesses and workers that are most at risk of being shut down. And the last policy that we study are these stimulus checks, these $1,200 checks that went out around April 15th to primarily low-income Americans. You can see a dramatic increase in spending. So these provided important social insurance to people whose incomes had fallen. In fact, other people's work have shown that although employment loss has been very large for low-income Americans, on average, they've been made whole by increases in government benefits. One thing we're able to do with this combination of data is look where that spending has gone. There's been a shift in how people have spent their money from small businesses to large businesses. So this money has been really important in providing a financial lifeline to people who have lost their jobs. And for many low-income people, they would have difficulty meeting their day-to-day -day needs without 
a job or some support. But that money isn't going directly back to those businesses that have suffered the greatest revenue losses. La minute technique. In this podcast, uh, researchers take one minute to try to explain one technical aspect of their research. I wanted to ask you if you could tell us a bit more about how you identify the impact of the stimulus check and especially the regression discontinuity design that you implement to look at this particular policy. So in order to measure the effect of the stimulus checks on people's spending, we really rely on the fact that they landed on a particular date. And so in particular, the vast majority of stimulus checks were deposited into people's bank accounts on April 15th. We use that sharp change in the availability of these stimulus checks to measure how they change people's spending. What we're going to do to do that is we look at how people's spending was changing leading up to April 15th, and then try to detect a sudden change in people's spending on or near that date, and then follow how people's spending continued to evolve afterwards. And there's an underlying assumption there, which is that the thing that changed on April 15th was the stimulus check. So if there was some other big change in the economy that also happened on that same date, then we wouldn't be able to identify the change in spending as being caused by the stimulus check. There's a second assumption, which is that spending was evolving smoothly around that date. So normally things change smoothly. There aren't any sharp or sudden jumps in the data. If we detect a sudden jump on April 15th, and we know that the only thing that happened on that date was that people started receiving these stimulus checks, we're able to say, aha, that jump was caused by the receipt of those stimulus checks. So we know that your platform is continuing collecting and, and displaying numbers, tracking the evolution of the, the economy, consumption and employment figures as well. Going forward, what do you think are going to be the key avenue of research in terms of like the longer impact of the pandemic, but also, like you mentioned, how to best target policies to address the needs of the most vulnerable ones? Thinking about how this will unfold during the pandemic, right now we see a very unusual recession. And a recession that is hitting low-income workers hardest in affluent areas, which is not what's happened in previous recessions, a recession that's driven by health concerns. And one of the questions that people will need to follow going forward is whether this transforms into a more traditional Keynesian recession, where there is a drop in demand that's driven by a loss of income that needs to be stimulated by increases in government spending. I think detecting whether the patterns in economic activity change in real time is going to be very important because governments are designing policies that are spending really large shares of GDP um, in real time and need to know if the situation on the ground changes and adapt their policies accordingly. It's not just COVID-related policies, but really any major policy that is expected to affect either employment or spending or business revenues, those effects can be detected within weeks of the policy going into effect. Before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you if you had a recommendation for our listeners of book, uh, movie or podcast, anything that changed the way you thought about economics. So I'd like to recommend one of my favorite podcasts. 
which is season one of a podcast called Threshold. And this is a podcast that at first you might think it has nothing to do with economics. It's about the history and present state of the bison in North America. The fact that white settlers destroyed more than 99% of bison populations in North America is deeply related to the economic history of subjugation of the First Nations and Indigenous people. As debates rage about whether or not to reintroduce the bison as free-roaming creatures, there's once again economic tensions involving the management of a common resource, which is in tension with the interests of cattle ranchers and farmers who are concerned about how the presence of these creatures might affect their uh, cattle herds, might introduce disease, potentially, and affect their economic livelihood. And so you have this uh, classic issue around the management of a common resource and externalities, that is, spillovers that, that the reintroduction of the bison might cause onto individual farmers or ranchers. So this podcast connects with really excellent economic research by Donna Fair, Rob Gillizo, and Maggie Jones, a paper titled The Slaughter of the Bison and the Reversal of Fortunes on the Great Plains, which shows how the Native Americans who were affected by the destruction of the bison, that still is having economic impacts today and can be seen in their local economies and in their health. Thank you so much, Michael, for your time. Thank you, Clementine. This was Inequality Talks, a podcast recorded by Clementine Van Effenter in Toronto. Music is by The Count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode. <laughs>